Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 122, The Evolution of the Mind and Life Dialogues. This week we speak with Adam Ingle, the business mastermind behind the Mind and Life Institute. Adam shares with us the big picture vision and strategy behind Mind and Life, which in the past two decades has had a significant impact on helping create the field of contemplative science. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. We're back again with another interview, and we have a special guest in the studio today. And of course, here with me is Vincent Horn. Hello. Yes, we're here today in the studio with Adam Engel. He helped co-found the Mind and Life Dialogues, which is now the Mind and Life Institute. Actually, the year I was born, 1983, and he co-founded along with the Dalai Lama and Francisco Varela. And if you don't know about the Mind and Life Institute, it's a institute that's dedicated to the intersection between the neurosciences on the one hand and on the Buddhist contemplative path on the other. And maybe we could just start there, Adam, and you could say a little bit about what the core kind of mission and purpose of uh, the mind and life is. Yeah, well, it's actually migrated a little bit from what you just said. Our, our founding premise, Francisco and the Dalai Lama and I, observed that science is the dominant paradigm for understanding the nature of reality in modern society and providing a knowledge base for improving human lives. And Buddhism, while it is a path of liberation, is not based on faith or theology, but it's based on also understanding the nature of reality and then using that to provide a knowledge base for improving lives. So we, we thought that if we could find a way that science and Buddhism could actually be in dialogue, share their findings, and collaborate, there were two very, very powerful systems of knowing that used different instrumentalities but that humanity could benefit if they, you know, were in collaboration. Science, of course, proves itself through the scientific method and technology and objective verification. Buddhism uh, and, and the, the other world's living contemplative traditions use the human nervous system, the human mind, refined by meditation as the instrument of investigation. Uh, but they're both very, very empirical in a sense. And there really wasn't any way for them to share their findings to collaborate. So the thought was, well, how do you do that? And, you know, we thought if we could just get a few people together in a room. And so in 1987, I started working on it in 1983, but it was 1987 by the time we actually got the first meeting going. And it was hosted by the Dalai Lama in his audience room in his home in Dharamsala with seven days on Buddhism and the neurosciences, cognitive sciences. And it was amazing. And it was a start. And in the beginning, it was just like a lark. Um, let's see if we can do this. And then afterwards, I asked the Dalai Lama, do you want to do it again? And he said, yes. And we did another one and another one and another one and another one. And then in about um, 1997, 1998, we'd done seven of them. And they were very, very private. Uh, we would produce books after each one. There were various topics 
by that point in time, healing emotions, sleeping, dreaming, and dying, compassion, physics. But I was wondering, I mean, the Dalai Lama was very much engaged, and I started thinking, you know, I wonder if we're maximizing the societal benefit from these interactions. You know, I'd hate to do this for another 10 or 15 years and then have someone come along and say, you know, you really blew the opportunity. So I asked Francisco and several other people who had become advisors to the mission by that point in time, Tipton Jimpa, John Kabat-Zinn, Danny Goldman, Richard Davidson, and Harrington. We got together in Boston, in Cambridge, and I asked that question, are we maximizing the you know, the opportunity to serve humanity. And the consensus was, well, if you want to have any lasting impact, certainly in the world of science, you can have all the meetings in the world and you can publish all the books in the world, but the only thing that's really going to matter is rigorous studies, the results of which are published in uh, reputable peer-reviewed journals. And, you know, I'm a businessman. You know, my background is law and finance. So, you know, I'm just, and an entrepreneur. And, you know, I, you know, I put things together. And, and so I just said, okay, well, let's do it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. What do we have to do? And so we started developing a strategy for how to do it. And that strategy has grown to the point that we're now, if not the A leader in this field of collaborative research, and we're not just doing neuroscience, but it's also clinical science. Actually, let me give you a little bit more detail if I can. Sure. Um, you know, what I realized early on was that in order to have any real lasting impact in the world of science, it wasn't going to be done by one study or two studies or five studies. It had to be a lot of studies over a long period of time. That's how science proves itself. So what do you need to do to create these new fields you know, of, of scientific research on meditation and mental training? Well, you need scientists who want to do the work, and then you got to link them to funding, reliable funding. But what that really means is that you need young scientists, people who are just starting their careers, who basically say, We're going to make our career in this area because you can get a few of the top scientists like Richie Davidson who have made their careers and want to get involved and have time and spare money and that kind of stuff, but it's going to be a handful. The people who are in the middle who are building their careers, they've already got their reputations going and they've got their financing sources, you know, their funding sources. They just can't kind of like make a right turn in the middle of a career anyone else. So you got to get them young. And then you have to find a way to link them with NIH funding, reliable streams of NIH funding. Well, it turns out that the NIH doesn't really do what we call in the business world greenfield financing, really a, a little bit, but not very much. You have to develop pilot research that shows that there's promise in the area. And once they see pilot data, then people can apply for future grants and there's actually data by which those grant applications can be reviewed and grants can be given. You know, the NIH is a public trust. They just can't give out money without a review process and stuff like that. So the question then became, how do you design that system 
or, or, or catalyze, you know, the, the growing of those fields. And we didn't even have names for the fields at, at that point in time. And so over the years since 2002 until today, we have named the fields, contemplative neuroscience, contemplative clinical science. Neuroscience is the effect of contemplative training on the brain. Clinical science, the effect of contemplative training on behavior and the prevention and treatment of disease. And now we're looking into contemplative education. How do you bring the benefits of contemplative practice to children earlier in their lives? Because if this stuff is good, then it's got to be really good to start it earlier and to find ways to what they call in education, developmentally sequence it so that you start early in life, like learning a language or learning math. Well, how do you start it? And then how do you advance it up to the adult phase? So we're, we're calling that contemplative education. And we're, we're looking at different ways to talk about what we're doing so that we can, so that we can make it more understandable. And the latest iteration of all of this is to provide a scientific understanding of how to cultivate and develop a mind of compassion and resilience. And our overall strategy right now is composed of the following elements. We've got the meetings with the Dalai Lama, and we've done 18, and we've got the 19th coming up in Washington, D.C. It's a public meeting uh, on education in October of this year. And those are of different configurations. Uh, they're the private meetings that we have in his home in Dharamsala. We just finished the 11th of that. We've got large public meetings, which we're going to be staging in Washington, D.C., and that'll be the, the third large meeting that we've got of that. And then we've got smaller meetings that we have, we've done on invitation. Last year, we were at the Mayo Clinic and gave a small meeting, helped them do a meeting there. We were at Emory University in 2007. And are these generally meetings between the Dalai Lama and scientists? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dalai Lama, other contemplatives, and scientists. The other thing that we do is we hold now a annual week-long residential program, primarily for graduate students and postdocs and junior faculty. The young ones. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're growing the fields of these young scientists. In early June, in three weeks, we're going to have our sixth meeting. And then in conjunction with that, we also give research grants to the graduate students and the postdocs, small research grants, but they use that, they take it back to their laboratories, and they leverage that money with the overhead that's in place. And there's a huge multiplier effect. And then that gets them their first pilot study. And then we build up the pilot research. And then a lot of those people are now getting NIH grants wow. to continue the research. And then we, we started in 2006 a project uh, to try and answer the question, how do you bring the benefits of contemplative practice to children? And so we started the Mind and Life Education Research Network that is just ending its first phase. And we've been meeting over the last three years, neuroscientists, clinical scientists, contemplatives, contemplative scholars, educators, prevention researchers, to figure out how do we move that field forward? 
know, what does that look like? You know, how do you bring that to children? How do you actually do that? And what can we offer? You know, because there's a lot of effort that's going on. And our meeting in Washington this year is the culmination of the first phase of that, the three-year phase. It's kind of like we're going to showcase what we've come up with to date and then try and catalyze a lot more research activity in the area. So over the last six years, since we launched this in 2003, you know, the number of neuroscientists and contemplative scientists that were, you know, reputable, that were really involved in this work were literally just a handful. And now there, there are hundreds. You know, as a result of the work of the Mind and Life Institute, a center has been established at the Stanford Medical School for the study of compassion and altruism. Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin has just established a new center for the study of the healthy mind. The Dalai Lama just launched a center at MIT for ethics and transformational values. And all of that is, uh, if you trace it back, was spawned by the activity of the Mind and Life Institute. So we see right. ourselves as a catalyst, a catalytic organization. You know, we, we're always looking for on how to leverage, you know, our meager resources, our human resources, and our financial resources. And we're just thrilled at the effect, the trim tab effect that we've been able to create. And so now what we're doing is we're totally reevaluating what we do in the world in light of our success to figure out where do we need to go next in order to stimulate activity. Total success for us is being totally co-opted and adopted by the mainstream scientific establishment. And then it's like, okay, well, we can go on and do something else. But the Dalai Lama is very, very involved. Next year, we're going to be launching a public meeting in Zurich, and it's going to be in the field of neuroeconomics. In other words, how can we promote altruism and compassion in business and economic decisions and decision-making. So it's a tremendously exciting time for us. And you know, I've been involved in uh, you know, thinking through the next phases. I was kind of wondering as you were talking about these dialogues, what it would be like to be not a participant necessarily, well, maybe participant and a viewer. What's it like actually in a dialogue what kind of conversations are happening and how does that then lead to the kind of projects that you're talking about? Well, you know, they're all topical, depending on the topics. And we try and do topics that are, are fruitful for future research. One of the reasons that we have done much more in the cognitive sciences than physics, and we've done a couple in physics, but we've done many, many more, is because, and, then, and this started with Francisco. When I first approached the Dalai Lama based on a rumor that I heard that he was interested in meeting with scientists, and I got authorization to go forward and put on the first meeting, I thought we'd do it in physics. And I went and I spoke with Fritjof Capra, the Dao of Physics, and started going down that road because that's all I knew. And then Francisco heard about my efforts, you know, on the Buddhist grapevine, and he was living in Paris at the time, and he called me up, and he said, I understand you're trying to put together a meeting, a science meeting with the Dalai Lama. I said, yeah. He said, what, what do you plan on doing? And I told him, and he said, Adam, he said, don't do it in physics, you know. Mm -hmm. Physics is a dead science. He said, do it in biology. Do it in cognitive science. Uh -huh. I, mean, I, 
I'd never even heard the words cognitive science at the time. You know, I probably heard them, but I wasn't sure what it was. But, you know, here was a card-carrying neuroscientist who was interested, and so we kept on talking. And what, what Francisco pointed out was that in the world of physics, the dialogue can be very, very robust, but very limited to a philosophical dialogue. Because Buddhists don't have any conception of how to deal with uh, splitting atoms or super colliders or anything related to experimental physics. However, in the cognitive sciences, they can actually work very, very closely with scientists to design the protocols. And, and that's really been the success of what we've been able to pioneer. When Richard Davidson and also Francisco wanted to begin to do research on meditation, the way that they did it was they invited Matthew Ricard into the laboratory. They basically told him what they could measure and then asked him what he thought they should measure. Mm -hmm. and, and so Matthew was very, very involved in designing the protocols, trialing the protocol, recruiting the cohort that actually went into the laboratory, helping to interpret the results, and he was actually author on some of the original papers. Because he was a trained scientist at one point and then turned right. Tibetan monk, right? Right. Yeah. Without that collaboration, that was something that Francisco understood from the very beginning, that it wouldn't work for scientists to try and bring the contemplatives into the lab as guinea pigs because they didn't really know what to look for. You know, it had to work as a true partnership, as a true collaboration. And I think that's one of the things that Mind and Life has been able to pioneer successfully and to, you know, start transmitting, you know, through places like the Summer Institute and, and our dialogues and things like that. So getting back to the dialogues, you know, first is the topic. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into holding one of these dialogues. Like next week, we've got all of the participants, except for the Dalai Lama and one or two others that are going to be on stage in D.C. coming to Boulder for two days so that we can start working together to co-create this dialogue. It's not something like a, a normal science meeting where people kind of get on a plane and start reviewing their talk and just get there and, and just do their standard talk. A lot of what we have to do in the preparation is to train them out of their standard way of presenting. So, again, it, it varies by topic and by presenter. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is use the Mind and Life meetings to go into new territory that we're trying to open up for collaborative research. So, uh, after we adopted the research paradigm, we started with destructive emotions and then neuroplasticity, attention and memory, education, neuroscience, clinical science, and things like that. And so those, the purpose of those dialogues is to noodle around with the Dalai Lama, you know, how we would think about doing collaborative research in this area. And the experience is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, our meetings in Dharamsala go for five days now. And he's physically in the room for five hours a day. You know, two and a half hours in the morning, two and a half hours. And, you know, there's a hundred people in the room. 
I think in the last time, including him and the translators, there were 12 people in the dialogue and a number of observers. You know, the most extraordinary thing is just being in dialogue, you know, with the Dalai Lama. And he's incredibly present, incredibly knowledgeable. You know, there are translation issues that we've honed down. He understands English very, very well, speaks less well. But, you know, we, we work with the dialogue partners to teach them how to talk in English that, in a way that he can understand it so that we can minimize the amount of translation. I'm curious, uh, since from the time when you started this to now what the reactions have been from both the scientific community and the Buddhist community too. I mean, I agree that the focus is really on this, the scientific community because it's so predominant in the Western culture. But I'm just curious, like, has there been challenges and have more scientists becoming more and more open? You know, the, the reception has just been absolutely extraordinary and astounding. When I decided, and, and it was a big personal struggle for me to give up my day job and to you know, give it a go for mine in life. I actually had to adopt the understanding that I would never see any positive results during my lifetime. The idea of trying to build a field around the scientific study of, you know, legitimatize the scientific study of meditation back in 2002, you know, was was kind of far-fetched and laughable. I mean, there had been scientific studies of meditation but within mainstream science it was really laughable you know even richie and john kabat-zinn and danny goldman tried to do some scientific research in the early 70s and just couldn't be done really from the science side one of the things you know the most critical thing that changed was the invention of brain imaging technologies that totally blew away the pre-existing understanding of how the brain operated and launched the new field of neuroplasticity. You know, prior to this brain imaging technology, neuroscientists thought that what happened in the brain, it was a very, very static organ. You're basically born with these billions of neurons and the only thing that happened during your life was you pruned them, you lost them. And that, for instance, if you were born blind, the area of your brain that was responsible for your visual, the visual cortex, basically went dark. You know, it was inoperable. Well, once they got brain imaging technology, they realized that that was totally false. That the brain was, was quite malleable and quite plastic and that the synapses were changing all the time and that essentially your thoughts and emotions were actually repatterning your brain 24 by 7, whether you knew it or not. So when we went to MIT in 2003, we thought about what kind of a meeting, science meeting, could we hold in a public setting with no data? You know, because that's kind of unheard of in science. And so we chose three topics that were under active investigation by neuroscience. Attention and cognitive control, emotions, and mental imagery. And we created sessions around each one exploring in a public setting the efficacy 
of what it would look like to have contemplatives in the laboratory helping to research these areas. Would that be a benefit to the neuroscience community? And the, and the, the, the proposition that we were offering is that, you know, if you're trying to investigate the mind, wouldn't it be a good idea to have the Olympian athletes of mental training mm-hmm. on your research team? And the response was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, it was really, really interesting. I mean, you ask about what it's like to be in the room. I mean, it was really interesting to watch that dynamic. And we've got DVDs of all of this. And it's like the scientists came in quite skeptical. I mean, we're able to get world-class scientists to show up because it was a Dalai Lama. And, and we had put together a real good agenda. But it was kind of like, well, and over the course, you could almost see them thinking, we can work with these guys. You know, these are really reasonable people. And then, you know, getting a, an experience from the Dalai Lama and Matthew Ricard and other contemplatives that were in the room saying, you know, these guys are onto something. You know, I don't know what they've got, but, you know, I want, I want to learn more about what that is. So that was kind of like the launch. And then right after that, we launched the Summer Research Institute and the, the Varela Awards. You know, there's a couple of data points, you know, aside from the sheer numbers. I mean, we've got graphs that show the number of articles that have been written mentioning meditation or mindfulness and stuff like that. And starting with 2004, it's like a hockey stick. Mm -hmm. The same thing with dollars from NIH. Mm. And we're not the only ones out there that are doing this. The Center for Mindfulness that was started by John Kabat-Zinn 30 years ago has also been doing research. And, you know, it's been building, but it's been going very, very slow. So it, it's been a, you know, a collaborative effort. Um, and John Kabat-Zinn is on our board and our vice chair. And so, you know, we're doing this all together. But as I said before, the number of scientists that are involved, you know, have gone into the hundreds, you know, the thousands, maybe. There are these new research centers that have sprung up. You know, a couple of years ago, I went and I visited Richie and Madison. We get together, you know, a couple of times a year. And uh, I was waiting in his office for him to finish a meeting. And he walked in and he said, you know, I just came from a meeting uh, of the psychology department. We had the, all the psychology faculty there uh, welcoming the new graduate students. And I've got a couple of graduate students who are here to study meditation. And, you know, they, they mentioned that the reason that they had come was because they wanted to study meditation. And everyone applauded. He said, three years ago, that would have been impossible. They wouldn't have even been able to say it. So there's been a legitimacy in the whole field. So that's on the science side. On the Buddhist side, there's also been a very, very warm and uh, reinforcing reception. And, And I go now to the Buddhist side and, you know, everyone realizes the impact that this is happening and are incredibly supportive. And what we've now realized is that one of our growth challenges is that since our model is a true collaboration between the scientists and the contemplatives and the contemplative scholars, it's not just contemplatives, practitioners, but contemplative scholars, is that there are now so many more scientists who are interested in collaborative research on meditation and mental training than there are contemplatives and contemplative scholars that are available to be partners, that we've got to start thinking about how we can generate interest among the contemplative scholarship field, the contemplative field, 
the humanities in general, the social sciences, to create a real working relationship there. So that's another one of our growth challenges. You know, we've also got to think about, you know, how to continue this past the Dalai Lama. Because when Francisco died, you know, I went to his holiness and I said, do you still want to continue this? And he looked at me and he said, what we're doing is much too valuable to depend on any one life, whether it be Francisco's or yours or mine. He says, I want you to build this so that it outlasts us. And so that's what I'm engaged in right now is how do we create transition for me, transition for the organization, transition for the founding board, transition for his holiness, uh, you know, to the next generation. So it's a really exciting time and much, much different challenges than, than we started with. And so mm-hmm. we're just blown away by it. I mean, I just, I just opened up an email yesterday uh, with an eight-page brochure that has been developed by the Stanford University Development Department looking for financing for the new center at Stanford. When I first heard about it, my knee-jerk reaction was fear. Oh, my God, you know, how are we going to compete with Stanford? And that lasted about five seconds before I realized, wow, what an incredible success. I mean, Stanford University is raising money to finance the scientific study of compassion. Wow. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.